Welcome everyone to the 58th episode of the New Gen Mindset Podcast. I'm Dan Kozell here with Nick Tartaglia. What's going on, Nick? I'm good, but it should be more like how are you doing? You're the one that is in a better weather than me right now. <laughs> you know, two Canadian boys just living the dream. And then, you know, I'm kind of taking it easy down in Florida. I'm not going to brag, but that's that's what's happening right now. But, uh, you know, we're in a very interesting time right now. And the market has been on a crazy move. Uh, sell off in the last week and a half. It was triggered with the new Omicron variant. Uh, Yo, that's got everybody the, talking. The transitory, uh, no longer transitory. You have Omicron, you have market sell-off, you have Bitcoin sell-off, you know, you got a bunch of things going on crazy, your place is shutting down again. So there's a lot of confusion and chaos occurring again right now. And the market hates that because every time there's confusion, that's when people start getting out of the market. And um, I am so thrilled to have somebody on here uh, who has been living and breathing multiple market cycles. I'm just going to get right into this. Um, this gentleman... <laughs> You've probably seen this guy in every uh, major sell-off news piece. There's a picture of him everywhere. Um, he's one of the most world-renowned photographed men on Wall Street, works at the New York Stock Exchange. His career spanned well over 35 years on Wall Street, and he's been a student of the market since the day he was born. And over his years, he has built and given back to the trading community and founded with his partner, David Green, WallStreetGlobalTradingAcademy.com, which teaches young, ambitious, or old and ambitious uh, retail investors to get into the market. Welcome to the New Gen Mindset Podcast, the Einstein Woo! of Wall Street, Peter Tuckman. What a great <laughs> intro, man. Thank you. I'm absolutely honored. I love that I'm the 58th. Um, uh, podcast because you know my number is 588 and uh, I've had that is my badge number that I've had for 32 years and 588 are actually really important numbers in Chinese culture it's all about money and it's all about integrity so the 58th episode it was obviously meant to be guys great awesome. really happy to be here we're, we're, we're so thrilled to have you here happy Hanukkah by the way um, thank you same to you and a happy, happy Festivus to you and your family. Um, before we jump into the market, let's talk about sort of your career. How did you get into this? I mean, 35 years, you've seen it all. You've yeah. seen 1987, you've seen 08, you've seen the COVID crash. What's going on? And now we've got a crypto uh, fear rally. But just, just tell us, how, how did you get into this space? You know what? It's funny. I'm, my journey didn't always lead in this sort of direction. Uh, you know, I grew up in New York City. My uh, father's a doctor. My parents are Holocaust survivors, came here in 1949. I had, you know, I grew up with an amazing uh, childhood. Everything was cool. I had a great um, high school career, but I was always sort of a hustler and an entrepreneur going all the way back. And uh, I graduated high school and went on to college and I studied um, agriculture first. That was going to be my first big dream. I'd spent a, a year in Israel after high school and sort of Gotten in, got into uh, agriculture. I thought that was going to be what I was going to do. Ended up going to UMass, studying that and got a degree in plant and soil science and kind of realized that, you know, that probably wasn't going to be my future. And so I sort of segued into international business, started studying management and accounting and business. And um, that's sort of where I sort of got my juices flowing. I have an older brother who my father adopted during the war, who is a pretty major businessman, got into the oil business, got into the stock market business, and he'd always been a mentor of mine. And so I sort of, when I realized I wasn't going to be planting tomatoes and I was going to be trying to make some money, so I sort of 
followed in his footsteps and he he's still alive. He's about to be 90. I just actually came from visiting him in Texas, but he's been an incredible mentor to me and an inspiration of somebody who sort of has had a really, you know, sort of rough and tumble journey on his way there, but really uh, uh, adopted finance and business and sort of the, the human element within business as his goal and his life. Um, so I um, came back to New York after college. I started, uh, I was going to get an MBA, which I actually never finished uh, at Baruch University in New York City. But at the same time, I sort of started my career of entrepreneurship. I started trading commodities first and I was, uh, and I opened up a record store in New York City in 1980. It was a actually a African art gallery slash coffee shop slash record store where we used to uh, have our artists come and play music. We sort of were modeled after a European record store and, um, and we had an art gallery. That was sort of one of my big uh, beginning. It was right off Bleecker Street in the 80s. It was a wild and tumble time. And during the day I was trading commodities and I did really well in commodities until I didn't, right? Everything was all fine and good. I turned about 3000 bucks, which at the time was a lot of money into about 50 grand and then lost it in three days in a in sort of a trading places downward spiral of oranges. And by the end of that week, I was, you know, trading lumber and, and potatoes with about the 800 bucks I had left in my account. So all that being said, that was sort of my, my first little uh, journey into um, trading and business. I never ended up getting my full MBA. I ended up moving to West Africa for a couple of years and uh, I ran the, um, the finances and the accounting for a Norwegian oil company. It was just sort of things in New York got a little bit shaky. It was time to get out of town, get out of Dodge for a minute. I had a friend who ran an oil company in uh, Norway. They were doing some exploration off the coast of uh, Benin, the People's Republic of Benin, West Africa. So I kind of like, you have to realize, guys, this is 1983. This is before computers. This is before cell phones. This is before a lot. Right. And so, you know, uh, Lotus one, two, three, which is, you know, older than your your grandfather's underwear um, was the first spreadsheet computer program that came out when computers were just starting out. The first Apple had, you know, was just being sort of thought of in the uh, in the garage with, uh, with 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 the boys over there who we know much, much better today. But anyway, so on the plane, I learned about uh, spreadsheets and, and, and Lotus one, two, three. I got to West Africa. I became the accountant for this company. And it was sort of a wild couple of years. Uh, learned about a lot about numbers, learned about finance, learned about oil and um, sort of honed my skills a little bit that way. I mean, it's curious. You asked me this morning whether I was going to do this podcast or a phone or a computer. And I said, I've actually never owned a computer in my life. And that is true. I still don't. And it was just probably something to do with the experience I had back in 1983. But anyway, I came back to New York in 1985 on May 23rd. I got a summer job as a teletypist on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. My father had had a patient, uh, a number of patients who had been in finance, been in the industry, who worked on the floor of the exchange. And, uh, you know, it seemed like that was, it was sort of a, an epiphany I had one night. I said, I'd love to get down there. I've seen it on TV. I've seen how exciting it is. You know, as you can see, I'm sort of adrenaline filled, bigger than life type of a character. So, and, and I was that way back then too. So Wall Street seemed like a perfect setting for me. And so uh, I got a job on May 23rd, actually in uh, 1985 uh, as a teletypist with Cowan and Company. 
And I started my job that way. And uh, I knew from the minute I walked onto the floor in the main room of the New York Stock Exchange, which you guys have seen all my videos that I do every day from the floor, that it is the most important, most relevant, most incredible house of finance institution in the world. It still is. It's been there for 120 years. It's my home. It's my life. And, um, and that's where I worked. And that's where I started. And, you know, the funny thing about Wall Street is, and it's unfortunately there are not as many jobs as there were down there on the floor as they were back then, because it was sort of a huge, robust, relevant, hot spot in 1985, there were 10,000 people on the floor of the exchange. There were four trading rooms. There were 1,600 seats. And uh, it was really one of the great peaks of the street, the Wall Street, you know, uh, the floor of the exchange, right? We need to differentiate. Wall Street is sort of the upstairs guys, the, uh, the M&A people, the investment bankers, portfolio managers. And then there's the floor of the exchange. It's called the street for a reason. The people who have worked there historically are not your MBAs, are not your, your upstairs guys. They're your downstairs guys. They're guys who have sort of had a different upbringing, a different education. You know, the floor of the exchange was sort of a family place. Your grandfather worked there, your father worked. There was no particular training uh, or schooling that would get you down to the floor. The floor of the exchange is one of those rough and tumble places. You're either good with people, good with numbers, think quick on your feet, you know, and know how to make a deal and correct the human beings information and communicate and if that's your thing if you're the guy who needs to you know have a cigarette and read the paper and slow down with a cup of coffee on your way to work and all that the floor is not your place but if you're a person who's like gets into the gate at, at the belmont stakes and the bell rings and you're out of the spot and you're running from the hills then it is a place for you so that was it i got down there that day and I knew the minute I, I walked onto that floor that this was going to be my life. This was going to be my career and uh, the place where I would spend the next 35 years. It's, uh, it's pretty incredible, too, because um, the emotion is what dictates the behavior, right? Um, and I, Nick and I were just talking about it. I mean, you, you've seen it all, right? And I feel like you're at a point in your life right now where there's the, the passion is exceeding sort of like where you're at. You know, and that's, I feel like that's what's keeping you going. Am, am, am I wrong or am I correct? You know what? It is passion. It's the love for what I do. And it's sort of this pivot I made recently, probably around COVID time, where I suddenly realized that, you know what? I am, I'm not at the height of anything because I see a lot more upside to my life and my career and my mission, uh, educating and inspiring other people. But it just got to the point where I was so bursting with a love of what I do that and then the pandemic and you know uh, we, we can talk about it later i almost i got covid really badly on march 13th i almost died so i really went through some deep deep trauma and so i wasn't clear i was going to be here uh to continue to tell my story and my my journey so it sort of became a thing where okay this is the best time and it also are, are what happened in the market and what happened in our lives right i think everybody's life globally uh, changed on that day, you know, when when this pandemic was announced and what happened on Wall Street, and what happened in our whole world and the global shutdown and all the deaths and all the trauma and everything like that. Everything kind of changed. Right. We've seen that happen probably throughout history. There have been pivotal moments in people's careers and people's journeys and people's lives and people's careers and the whole global uh, uh, landscape. 
where shit changes, guys, you know, and and you either take a left and you go down a hill, or you take a right, you start to change your mission and your message and, and try to find a, a, a new calling. And that's sort of what happened to me. So yes, it's enthusiasm that's bigger than life. Yes, it's emotion that drives me on a daily basis. And it's funny and, and it's adrenaline, but the love of what I do and the emotion, you're right about that because that's what gets me up in the morning. Right now, you know, I'm suffering from long COVID. I've got a lot of things going on, yet I get up every morning at 7.30 and I'm at the market and I'm there, you know, and not only do I trade for, for the customers of my company, but I've taken on this new mission to look at the big picture and take this opportunity, which I think is pivotal and generational to motivate and inspire this new incredible community that's out there, this new generation of traders uh, like yourself and like people who are younger, men and women, all old and young, whoever's in the the marketplace now um, to share my experience, right? That is the, the only that is the only thing that I can do. I'm not here to recommend stocks to you. I'm not here to be your financial advisor. I'm here to share my experience because I've seen a lot of this movie before, but yet every day, the reason I stay relevant and stay focused and go in every day is because there are parts of this movie I've never seen, right? There are parts of this market I've never seen and I know no one has. The volatility, the vaccine, the virus, the 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 the, the crypto, uh, NFTs, uh, the enthusiasm, the passion, the democratization of the investment community, right? The fact that everybody, you know, the barriers to entry are down. Everybody with ten dollars and a friggin' cell phone and a free fractional trading app can be invested in the market. How exciting is that? And not everybody of my generation is so accepting and embracing of this new community and this new experience but i've sort of taken uh, uh i'm a connector that that's what i am i love putting people together i love to inspire people i love to share my passion and my love for what i do i really believe and it's not my line i didn't invent it but if you find something you love to do you'll never work a day in your life and so i found that and so i i, I use it as an inspiration to myself to now try and inspire and motivate other people to find something they love to do, whether it's trading and branding and advertising, whatever it is, public speaking, or uh, just being a motivational person and help other people out. But um, this is an extraordinary time and extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures. And that's why I've sort of put my life and my, um, my love of this industry out, out on the pavement here for everyone to see and learn from. You know, it's, it's awesome, first off, to see your energy, because as the younger generation, we're like, you know, we're right, right on the edge of being the last of the millennials and the, right at the beginning of the Gen Zs. And to feel that energy and see it, you know, we can take it in because it, it gives us someone to look up to. It gives us a crowd of people to see. We know what they've done. We see them doing it still now. And it gives us energy to want to pursue the same type of path of, as people like yourself. So having said that, People that are trying to trade are starting to get in this world of, you know, taking control of their own capital because we're now in this reality now where people are starting to realize I don't necessarily want others to do everything for me. I want to start having control of my own financial life. And the first step of that is knowing how to start allocating my capital. And a lot of the time, people at the beginning, they start off by wanting to trade because it has that more of risk reward that they appeal, especially with the younger crowd. So what are some of the things that you would really say? These are the steps you need to start getting your head around in order to start that journey. So, you know, what concerns me, as I said to you, 
the fact that all the barriers to entry, you know, the, the, uh, that same time where everything, where the world and our worlds changed on May 23rd, 2020 is kind of the day where the, the sell-off ended and the rally began and we did declared COVID and people were dying and the stock exchange uh, had closed actually for two months and Robinhood showed up and everybody was being able to trade for nothing and people were sitting sheltered in place at home with a bunch of money and the Reddit and the Wall Street bets guys started to go on fire and the meme phenomenon was just starting to marinate, right? Um, and then you saw everybody suddenly sitting at home. I mean, I'm sure there'll be a movie made of it one day that, that suddenly the, our new reality, right? Suddenly on May 23rd, uh, on March 23rd, suddenly everyone, uh, jobs, you stopped going to work. You sheltered in place. Some people were sick, some were dying, some were whatever. But there was not a soul on this earth was not suddenly starting to be affected financially, spiritually, economically, in every possible way, our lives change. And so if we look at the microcosm of that in relation to what you're talking about, suddenly there were millions and millions of new people, right? I mean, TD Ameritrade came out with a wonderful number in like July that said, holy shit, there's 40 million new retail traders have suddenly embarked, you know, have descended on the investment and trading community, right? So if you just kind of put a picture on that, it would be a funny animation. It would probably be like a Family Guy episode of 40 million new people sitting there with a stimulus check and one screen and a Robin Hood app sitting there with diamond hands going, holy shit, this is wild. You know, buying things on FOMO and Hype and Wall Street Bets and Reddit and la 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 la, and some of them making money and some of them mortgaging their grandmother's houses and losing everything. One guy jumping out the friggin' window, unfortunately. May, may God rest his soul. But, um, you know, so all that being said, to paint a little picture for you of how I see it, um, I sort of realized that we're seeing the guys who are posting the pictures on social media with the Bugattis and the stacks of $10,000 bills talking about diamond hands and, and making millions of dollars in GameStop. And then I'm getting the phone calls from the thousands of people who bought GameStop at 480 and their account blew up the next day, who bought AMC at 60, didn't sell it at 75, and now we're spending seven months trying to get back to even. Those people who realize that the people they were getting advice from or the fact that they were taking financial advice from the internet and using hope as a strategy for trading was a, actually a formula for disaster and not a formula for profitability. And so I've taken it upon myself with my friend of 35 years. I, I will give a shout out to David Green, who is my mentor, my friend, and my teacher. David Green and I met on the floor of the exchange in 1985. All four of his brothers all worked on the floor of the exchange. His dad was a fireman, so he did not come from a family on finance, but the whole family descended on Wall Street in the 80s and became a viable force to be reckoned with. David went on to uh, becoming a market maker for Goldman Sachs. He retired at the age of 38 when Goldman bought um, Spear Leeds uh, a trading book. And he went on to trade for himself. Within three months, he had lost $300,000. And you have to realize to be a market maker on the floor, you have everybody's order flow. Right. So it was really a sort of a license to print money back in the day, because not to say they were doing anything wrong, but a market maker was somebody 
I went on to become a broker after I was a, uh, a teletypist. I went to become an option clerk, a retail clerk, an institutional clerk. And then obviously my goal was to become a trader and a broker, to have a seat on the exchange. That's everyone's goal when they get down to the floor of the exchange. I did it in two and a half years. I just got, I was lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. I was good at what I did. I was good with numbers, good with people. And I just sort of was able to get it done. Most people back in the 80s, it took almost 10, 12 years to take that cycle if they ended up going that way from being a squad and a runner to being a reporter, to being a clerk, to being a broker. It was a long, long path. There's only 1,564 brokers. That was like a taxi medallion. It was decided back in the early 1900s. And over the years, it's been everyone's goal who got to Wall Street. It gives you the right and the license to trade stock. That's what a seat of the stock exchange is. My number is 588. I wear it. It's not a chair. I don't get to sit in it. It just gives me the right to trade stock. All that being said, David Green uh, was the person who, and we still have market makers today. Market makers are the ones who get all the public flow of all, all the buy and sell interest from all over the world. Now it comes into a computer and it's run by an algorithm and humans when things get volatile. But back in the day before computers, everything was done on paper. I'm trying to see if I have any trading pads in my area here. I don't actually, I'd show you how we used to do it on paper. But the market maker was the person, if I was a broker on the floor and I had 10, 20 different accounts and I was trading stocks before computers, before algorithms, before cell phones, everything had to be done manually by a broker. If I had 100,000 shares of IBM to buy and my, I got on the phone with my, my clerk would get on the phone with the portfolio manager who had gotten the order from the customer upstairs. They decided what their strategy was gonna be on that day. Maybe there was news out in IBM. Maybe they just loved the sector. Maybe they were just taking a position. Maybe they were covering a short. You never knew really what their incentive was, but they did give you the instructions. The order would come to me as a broker. I would go to the IBM specialist. That's what they used to be called. Now they're called designated market makers. I would go to him. He had all the other flow, all the people from Goldman and JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley. Everybody would come and give him their orders with instructions on what to do. So he had, or if it was an open outcry crowd, which you guys have seen in the movies of originally in the original Wall Street movie with Michael Douglas and some other movies, or if you look at some clips, I just recently posted a cool clip on my Instagram page of the old days, the way things used to trade. The market maker was there to create an orderly and smooth market. He would keep the buyers on one side and the sellers on the other. Although I have to say during wild crises and crashes and wild trading experiences things did get out of hand there was screaming and yelling buyers crossed with sellers price stocks were trading at different in a trading crowd but a good market maker was someone who kept it orderly so that the buyers were able to get the price they wanted the sellers were able to get their price we were able to execute stock because at the end of the day the whole point of the stock market, it's an auction market, is for buyers to buy stock sellers, to sell stock at a price, and that everybody is satisfied. And that's our fiduciary uh, uh, responsibility to keep the stock trading smoothly, right? So that the company can actually do what they need to do and live up to the expectations of the shareholders. And we as brokers at the point of sale are able to do our job, get the best price for our customer, the best price for our oh there's a there's a there's a pad that's it just fell off my table here so that's what we used to do we used to take an order over the phone we'd get beep we'd write buy hundred thousand shares of IBM I'd rip it off I'd walk into the market maker I'd say here I got a hundred thousand to buy I'd like to buy fifty thousand in line 
which meant within an eighth or a quarter. Back in the day, we didn't trade in pennies. We traded in eighths and quarters. And then I'd like to work the other 50,000. He'd go, okay, Peter, you want to be about half the volume. Yeah, that would be great. Now there are algorithms that do all that stuff. But back in the day, he would get all the buyers flow and so he knew where they lived. He would get all the sellers flow and then he was able to put on the transactions as he saw fit. So when he retired, David Green, at the age of 38 after a big buyout, and he went on to trade for himself, he thought he had diamond hands like some of the traders today do. You know, they have one win, they have one, two wins, and they think suddenly that they're, you know, that they're, 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 they're the cat's meow and they know what this whole game's all about. I got it. I know what I'm doing, you know, and they never under, they never uh, really take an, an adequate look at the volatility of what's in a stock that goes from CAR two weeks ago from 154 to 457 or GameStop from bankruptcy to 483 and back to 151 or AMC from $2 to $72 and back to 30 or any of these other crazy names that we're seeing. So he went on to lose $300,000 in a quick three months and realized, you know what, that, that, that buyout I got is not gonna last that long as long as I'm hemorrhaging money right this way. So he went on to learn technical analysis. We didn't invent it. It, happens a long, it happened a long time ago. What it is is using historic data and charting, right? And using moving averages and relative strength index, a number of, of formulas that are uh, mathematical formulas that have been around for the, since the beginning of time to determine the movement, support, resistance, overbought, oversold conditions in a stock and put the probability in your favor that the trades you're going to do with certain very strict rules Right, the most amazing thing that the stock exchange has done for all these traders, and they did it a long time ago, is to give people access to what's called a stop order. A lot of people don't know what that is. A lot of people use mental stop order. A stop order is, look, in a market where a stock goes from two to 480 and back to 150, you need to use stop orders. Stop orders are what's called risk management. When you get into a stock, you need to have a plan, right? So the best thing I can do to this new amazing passionate, excited generation of new traders is to share my experience, how not to lose money and how to take the best out of their profitable trades and lose the least out of their losers. Okay. To be responsible, to have a plan, right. To have good habits, to follow criteria. You know, I talk about it. Uh, I, I use this wonderful fun analogy about two friends who go to Vegas to, um, to gamble, right? And one of them, they both take out a thousand bucks, and one of them says, "You know what? Nah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm going for it. I'm gonna play blackjack. I got my thousand dollars. It's all good." And the other gambler says, "I'm gonna. I took a thousand out of the bank. If I make two thousand, he had a plan. One guy was just going in there with diamond hands, thinking he was gonna get lucky. The second gambler said, "If I make a thousand with my thousand, I will have 2,000, I'm gonna cash out, I'm gonna go get myself a nice dinner, a steak dinner at Ruth Chris, I'm gonna go back to my room and make a watch a movie. And the guy says, ah, yeah, forget about it, yeah, whatever, no problem. And at the end of the evening, this guy, they each make $1,000. The second, the first guy gets up and says, I'm done, I'm going to have dinner. The second guy goes, oh, look, I got diamond hands, I'm, I'm golden here, I'm just gonna keep trading. And two o'clock in the morning, after all said and done, the second guy goes out to have a smoke and he sees his buddy sit curved at the hotel, like drinking a, you know, a, a cognac, smoking a lucky strike, straight, lucky strike cigarette straight. He'd been to the ATM four times. He had turned his $2,000 profit into an $8,000 loss. And he was scared to shit that he's going to have to call his wife because he doesn't have money to pay the rent. 
That's what I'm trying to prevent. I want people to be able to go out there and learn how to do this responsibly, this hit singles and doubles and not shoot for a home run. You can go to the well with a home run once or twice, but if you give back everything plus on your third trade because you think you know the game, well, you end up blowing up your account. And there is a number out there, it's probably about 88% of people who try and day trade lose. They blow up, they're out of business. You don't see them posting that shit on social media, right? They don't <laughs> sit there and go, oh, show the money they just lost. They just talk about that they went out and took a loan. They mortgaged their grandmother's house and they lost it all. I promise you, 80 per plus percent of the people who have been trading since May of 2020 have lost money in these meme names, lost money on YOLO, FOMO, ape in the shit, all whatever, however you want to use the lingo, right? No, out of the money calls. I don't care. They've been playing these stocks. I analyzed that. Look, I've never owned a share stock in my life. I spend every day of my life, not only trading for my customers of the customers of my company, but analyzing why stocks do what they do, why markets do what they do. And in this new meme generation, I analyze the volume of where these stocks that go up 80% in five minutes is. And I can tell you specifically from research that on the day that GameStop went to 483, 88% of the volume was above $450. On the day CAR went to 457, 90% of the bar volume was over $400. On the day AMC broke above 20 and went to 75, 90% of the volume was above $62. And the next day AMC declared a secondary, it opened at 40. The next day GameStop went down to 151 before it stopped going down, right? And the next day, DWAC or UPST or A-Firm or whatever, any of these names that go up a thousand percent for no reason can go down a thousand percent. People got blown up. I've gone on social media doing Instagram lives when some of these meme names went wild and I get, you know, called a suit and an old man and you just got no balls and all that stuff by guys when I begged them Take profits. No one got broke, broke taking a profit. Never turn a winning trade into a losing trade. Never turn a winning day into a losing day. Have a plan when you get into a trade. Pick about how much money you want to make. And when you hit your goal, turn your machine off and go home. Money is the greatest uh, uh, time. It's the greatest commodity we have in our lives. If you're going to trade, you should be able to have a target goal. You should have a target loss also. That if you have three trading day, three trade, three bad trades, you turn your machine off and go home. If you have three winning trades, you should turn your machine off and go home. But if you don't, you give back 20% of your profits, you turn your machine off and go home. These are rules. These are habits that David Green has curated over years to protect profits. It's not about much how much money you make. It's about how much money you keep. So I say that in a long way to say that you ask me, what can I recommend people to do is to learn technical analysis, is to learn risk management, is to learn that people are taking financial advice from people who don't have your best interest involved, from some robot on Reddit or some guy who is who's already long a stock that he's touting. And when you're buying it, he's selling it to get involved on FOMO or hype when a stock's ran up a thousand percent for no reason and can absolutely go down as, as much even faster is to not use 
hope as a strategy for trading and to learn the game. People ask me every day, Pete, what, 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 you know, what stock should I buy? What do you think of that sector? And I'll say, if you learn technical analysis, and I also say this is not your grandfather's stock market. The, 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 the information I'm giving you today here is, is more relevant than ever. Never before in our lives. And you guys were talking on, on December 4th here, on Saturday after, in my opinion, could be the most volatile week I have ever seen in my life. We've had bigger days. We've had thousand days in this. But let's go over what just happened here from last Friday until yesterday, right? For a lot of good reasons, a lot of bad reasons, and a lot of no reasons. The stock market had the wildest ride I've ever seen this week, right? My eyes were crossed. I was spinning. And I promise you that a majority of people were not able to navigate that successfully, right? You know, who the heck would have ever thought that Peloton would have gone down, that the Chinese stocks would have gotten eviscerated. DocuSign. Uh, what? DocuSign Docu would have gone side. down a hundred, a hundred points. Stocks don't go down a hundred points. That's insane unless they're thousands, $3,000 stocks, right? DocuSign was the, was, was the gift that got us through COVID. I watched a funny post yesterday on Instagram that said, it was a guy said, um, I was long DocuSign, right? And my lawyer called me up and said, um, uh, you know, that I'm going into bank. Well, all my position was in DocuSign. My lawyer called me to say uh, that I've just gone bankrupt. And I said to him, what do I have to do? Because you got to sign your bankruptcy paper. I'll send it to you on DocuSign. It was like one of the funniest little memes. I saw, I saw that. Yeah, I saw that tweet too. It was like, my life just went full circle on DocuSign. It was pretty funny. <laughs> So anyway, guys, so, uh, you know, people need to, to, to learn the game, right? You know, it's only gambling if you don't know what you're doing. And, I, and my fear is that, that, you know, as much as social media is an amazing place for the community to grow and to communicate with each other, there's a lot of bad info out there. There's a lot of bad motivation out there. There's a lot of pump and dump going on. And so the best advice I can give, whether you learn it from me and David Green at Wall Street Global Trading Academy, or you learn it from anybody, the great thing that we do, which is our differentiator, is we coach and mentor everybody who buys our course uh, forever and ever, right? We do a live Q&A every Thursday night for all the members of the, uh, of the course, and we get to answer their questions, you know? Uh, learning this business is not easy, but it's fairly simple. And, um, you know, and, but you need, you, need your you need your hand held to get into it. It takes three to six months to really learn it, it doesn't mean you can't make money along the way. I, I, I want to go back to sort of the uh, volume on these meme stocks, because this is exactly what Nick and I talk about every day. And this is pretty much why we started this, you know, this podcast is to basically remind people like you got to manage risk. It's the most important thing when you're investing. And I, like you said, I hear stories of people saying I'm 90% in crypto. And I'm like, okay, are you comfortable with losing 90%? They're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, if that goes to zero, you lose 90% of what you invested. And then they kind of start thinking about it differently. So when you talk about sort of the volume of these meme stocks being at the peak of when right before like the massive dropper, you know, the, the, the rug gets pulled, this is exactly what FOMO is, is happening. So my question is this, compare this to 2000, the dot-com bubble. Are you seeing pockets uh, in the market right now that are eerie or similar? Like 
even with the NFTs, I like NFTs. I think they're great. But to me and Nick, there might be some pockets of like, what, what are you seeing that's, what are the similarities that you're seeing between the dot-com bubble and what's happening right now? It, and to add on to that, do you think price to perfection is more relevant now than back in the day? Okay. So, you know what, guys? I don't think it's at all relatable in any respect. I think it's something brand new. Okay. okay? I think price action is the key indicator of stock. Okay. I think, and as I said, it's not your grandfather's stock market. The moves that we look, it, this, this is in your intro, you gave me the perfect opportunity to say what I call what's going on as the perfect storm. We have, we, a perfect storm is really, if you remember the movie, right, with Clooney and those guys, it was like, look, fishermen go out fishing every day and they go out in bad weather. And as long as it's one storm coming from one side and they're able to navigate it, move around, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, you know, and then they can go somewhere else. But when, and, and this market has proven past two years that when a market is hit, markets are incredibly resilient, right? They, 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 they can freestyle and absorb virtually every bit of information from economic news, from Federal Reserve movements, from crises, whether they're health, financial or whatnot. One at a time, markets can absorb anything, right? They absorbed the Trump tariff story. They absorbed COVID. Now, they didn't absorb it on their own. Obviously, there are other moving parts to that story. The market is up while the economies came into a global shutdown because the Federal Reserve dumped $3 trillion over three months. During the crash of 07, they, they pumped $1.8 over three years. It took us nine years to get back to even. This time, they pumped $3 trillion in three months. And we got back to even by August. But there are other contributing factors to this. And I really believe that the 40 million new traders in the market and the wild and woolly cowboy and Indian mentality that's come on has also contributed to it in a big way. Let's also be clear who's in this market, guys. Right. Family of four who are struggling with money, uh, with struggling with getting putting a turkey on their table at Thanksgiving are not invested in the stock market. People with big money are the ones who are invested in the stock market and even more now than ever. And I believe, I don't know what the percentage is, but surely the top 5% of people of the 1% are the ones who are majority of people in the market. So it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, but that's a whole nother story in its own right. But what I, I, I need to say is what happened this week is that we saw the inflation story came out three months ago and then sort of hit the market in September. It was the biggest sell-off follow-through we saw. It was about a week and a half and the market forged on to record highs. The uh, supply chain story, that story maybe sold the market off for one or two days, but there was surely no follow-through in the sell-off side of that market. Then we saw the Federal Reserve taper. That should have been a cap in the top of the market. We have $120 billion a month being bought in mortgage-backed securities and in T-notes and T-bills and whatever. And now suddenly we're going to pull back on that. We're not selling them, but we're not gonna be buying them as much. So we're not gonna use premium gas. We're gonna use regular gas. We're not gonna be putting the pedal to the metal. We're gonna drive at 50 miles an hour. Shouldn't that have put a cap in the market? That had absolutely no effect on the market at all. So each one of these things on their own, which in a normal market historically would have, uh, uh, um, uh, would have sort of reversed the bull market to a certain extent or given us a bit of a pullback or a consolidation or a rotation and even a crash. We didn't see any of it, right? And so what happened this week was, and each one of the things individually on their own, the market 
you know, maybe reacted slightly, but there was never, we've not seen any kind of a three, four, 5% follow through on the downside since March 23rd of 2020, right? And there's been plenty of opportunities for it to happen and it hasn't happened. Every sell side has been nothing more than rebuffed by a much bigger rally. And now let's be clear about history too. If you look at the crash of 29, the crash of 87, the crash of 07, the timeline on recovery has been different, but they've all been better buying opportunities and selling opportunities. History tells us that. Okay. But what happened this week was sort of kind of very curious too. And, um, uh, you know, I, saw, I was watching Instagram this morning and people talking about what happened in crypto last night and whatever. Anyway, um, so what happened this week? This week was really the perfect storm. We had, we've set ourselves up. You know, there are stories that are sort of marinating that are in people's minds, right? In the ears of people. Now, I talked about it all last week on social media and it was something a lot of people didn't know about what ends up happening at the end of November. Why we often see a bit of a sell side is that a lot of hedge funds that have performed quite well in a year will close out their books at the end of November, right? They don't wanna turn a winning year into a losing year. They don't know whether it's gonna be Santa Claus coming to town or the shit's gonna hit the fan. So if I was up 20%, my two and 20 commission was going to be paid as a function of how I well I did on, for my customers. And I'm up 23% at the end of November. Why wouldn't I close everything out and go to St. Bart's for, for vacation, right? And a lot of them use that mentality and a lot of them follow that business model. So I already told people at the last week of November, you may see choppiness, you may see a bit of a sell side because that's what's happening. They're going to sell their tax loss underperformers. They're going to take profits on their outperformance and they're closing their books and they're going to their yacht in St. Barnes. Okay, that's it. So anticipate some sell-off. Then you've got, but no one knew, no, a lot of people don't know that story. They think November is just, you know, historic data. October was supposed to be the Black Monday. Blah, blah, blah. It didn't happen. October was the best since 2015. November was a little bit choppy, right? In and out, some sideways trading. Some of the outperformers were getting hit. Why is that happening? You know, let's break this down. Everybody's got an opinion on the breakdown, right? So anyway, um, you come into Friday, which is the day after Thanksgiving. We've got a lot of things sort of stirring, right? Now, were there people who knew about this virus thing before we did? It's possible. We saw that happen. A lot of people liquidated their position on February 12th through 20th, 2020, because they knew that the virus was coming. The shit was going to hit the fan, right? Who knows whether Bill Ackman was, when he went on CNBC that day, already was short the friggin' market when he decided to say the world was coming to an end. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. All that being said. So, uh, you saw a perfect storm occur and the perfect storm lived its way through all of this week. And I kind of broke it down in an IG live I did yesterday afternoon. So you have, you have one day off, okay? And a half a day trading on Friday, the news hits on, and you already are at the end of November, right? So people are hoping for a little bit of a bounce because we had had a couple of sell-off days. We had that incredible sell-off day, Monday, Tuesday. I, I, was, I, I was actually, we had a huge sell imbalance uh, on the floor a couple of days before Thanksgiving. And I, that's kind of when I remembered that that's what happens at the end of November, right? That these guys are, are bailing. These guys are shutting down. They're closing up shop for the end of the year. Why would you, not, why would you turn to win? It's losing, right? When I, when I'm, when I get paid on, on performance. So um, I kind of saw that coming a little bit, not, 
that I was prescient, but that I saw it in the imbalances. You know, that's another story to talk about. That's what I do. I analyze the market on closed imbalances, which is the real sizable institutional flow that comes into the market. And that's what we saw a lot of this week. Anyway, that's a different story. But look at what we just saw last week. We saw a market sell off on 900 points on Friday, a half a day trading, not a lot of liquidity, all because the world was being pounded by the media about the story about the Omicron, right? And everyone should buy themselves a helmet, put Omicron on the front, you know, laminate a couple of horns to it and run around the world. Look, trucks me, I almost died from COVID, so I'm not poo-pooing it. Everyone should wear their mask and be safe because I'm sure the shit's going to hit the fan. But all that being said, that's what was Friday. It was a short day's trading. People were on vacation already. There was minimal liquidity and the world was being told that we're up. We're about to go into another lockdown because the shit hitting the fan. We wake up on Monday morning. We had a nice little dead cat bounce market responded to a down 900. We were up about 350. You've got bottom feeders. You've got, you know, people, things went on sale. I kind of talked about it. I said we had Black Friday for retail and we had Black Friday for equities. That's all Friday was. Now, and everyone's so scared when these things happen. And I go, guys, experienced traders who don't want to buy Tesla at 1200, who are waiting around with a shopping list for when it goes on sale. When Macy's puts my favorite leather jacket on sale, I don't run for the hills. I go into the store and pay, pay, pay discount. I buy it 50% off. I love that. People are in the market who've been waiting for a 900 point sale to get into stocks started to get into stocks on Monday. Their shopping list was right in front of them. It was beginning to feel a lot like friggin' Christmas, okay? Then we came in, it was a little bit of a follow through on Tuesday, but that was the first day that Jay Powell started talking in Congress. We heard the story about burying the uh, transition word. And that's sort of, okay, so now we've got this new COVID thing going on. We had a down 100, 900 day. We're, 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 we're feeling a little bit fragile. And uh, the market should have bounced back a little more than it did on Monday. And so what's Tuesday going to bring? When he sort of put that little bit of doubt in everyone's minds on Tuesday, everyone said, whoa, whoa, did he really mean that? And the market sort of softened by the end of the day. Then we came in on Wednesday and it was like, oh, no, forget about it. It's just it's one story at a time. The, the virus is not as bad as they said. South Africa said it's not, it's a bit of a spreader, but it's not going to be bad. Jay Powell really didn't mean that story. Let's see what he says today when he speaks with Yellen in front of Congress. And the market was up 500 points. And Jay Powell went back in front of Congress and he never pulled back the story. He didn't walk it back at all. The world was ready to hear him say, guys, you overreacted to my transition story. The internet blew up with pictures of gravestones. I'm not burying the transition, so I didn't mean it. And he did not eradicate the doubt. And the market had a thousand point reversal. So all the people with anxiety waiting to hit that sell button just smacked it. They hit the button irresponsibly. You know, you have to realize so many of the socks these guys are in are so overvalued, right? They're so high up. DocuSign had gone from 70 to 270. Moderna went from 30 to 500. Peloton went from 30 to 170. You know what I'm saying? And then you saw Zoom go from this and Snow go from that, right? So these stocks are not trading in, in, in the real world. A lot of them aren't. So that if you're a big fund and you realize that there's some sell side coming into the stock, you're not price conscious. 
your price action. You want out. You don't wait around for the stock to bounce. You want out. I got 100,000 to sell. I hit the button. And then an algo sees 100,000 hit the, hit the sell side button. They get involved, right? You know, you've got algorithms that read social media, social content, right? They see volume. They see, see time. And they start. And it creates that snowball effect. And that's why you see these reversals that you see, right? They're real, but are they, are they, are, 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 they're a function of a, a lot of different pieces of the puzzle. And then we come in on Thursday after that thousand point reversal and everyone goes, what are we talking about? It's Christmas. Guys, where's the Santa Claus rally? These stocks are on sale. Let's go. What are you crazy? And they bought the market up 600 points. And then it was like, okay, wow, that, that's crazy. Right. So what are we never going to see another down day? And it's so funny because the press and the media contribute to this stuff because they talk about we can be up 40 percent in the marketplace. We hit one bad day and the media is already talking. The bull market is the bear market's in turmoil. (laughs) Right. We have markets in turmoil. We're on the death cross of the yield curve and it's the end of the world. And it's like I always say it every day. I said one day doesn't make a market. One week doesn't make a market. Guys, come on. And especially in a market that trades up and down in these, in, in, in these wild uh, price vacuums. So I'm, I'm so happy we can do this on in what my, I consider probably the most volatile week I've ever seen. It's been absolutely incredible to see too. Uh, it's almost like the, the crypto volatility has sort of entered the market, which is something that I, again, that was, like last said, night. That was Friday last night. The we, we, we've never seen that when, when you get an order from, let's say a client from upstairs, right? So just so we understand you get orders in from your brokerage house um, and, a, and it's from a portfolio manager or whoever. Um, and let's say they tell you to buy a stock or whoever tells you to buy a specific stock. Are you able to give them an opinion or do you have to go ahead and execute that order as they say? Let's say going back to, yo, like Peloton, you're trading at like, I don't know, 57 times sales. It's totally absurd. I don't know. Should you buy? Like, are you able to give that recommendation or no? Like, what's that process like? Okay. So uh, to be transparent, my trading model has changed a lot over the years. I used to do a lot in the different inceptions of my career. I traded at Cowan Company as a retail institutional broker. I went on to do risk arbitrage for a company called Lee Securities, where we were trading convertibles and convertible preferreds. And that was an amazing opportunity. Then I went on to become a $2 broker, which was an independent broker doing business for all the big houses. And at that time, I'd be able to, the way we traded, I did give my opinion about stocks. My opinion was not based on my opinion. It was based on what was going on in the landscape of the stock. So back in the old day, if I got an order from JP Morgan or Morgan Stanley, and it was to sell 100,000 shares of Peloton, didn't exist back in that day. But if it was 100,000 shares of Peloton, I would walk into the stock and I would ask the market maker, what's going on? How is it? And he'd say, Pete, look, it's a bit wild here. We've got two buyers at the $100 level. There's some buyers at 95. There's about some support at 93. We've got two market sellers who are kind of aggressive. And we've got a seller at 105. And we've got a million shares at 110. That was the landscape. And I'd have to make a decision as a, as a blackjack player would make or a poker player would make who's got experience looking at the table, right? Not just my cards. When I'm a broker, I'm looking at the table. I'm reading the eyes of the people playing poker with me, right? I'm looking what cards are out on the table that are, that are re- re- revealed, and I'm trying to figure out what they've got behind it. 
that seller who's got a million to sell at 110 may actually have 100,000 to sell at the market in his hand. That buyer who says he's got a $100 top may actually be an aggressive buyer, but he's playing poker with me, right? So this is the landscape. That's the way the markets used to trade when we traded in eighths and quarters and when I represented institutional flow. Unfortunately, for a lot of reasons, that's not the broker I am today. The business model I do trade today, but there are people who still do that, right? I work with a gentleman who has order flow that um, where he's given uh, what's called a discretionary order, which means he's got 50,000 shares of snow to buy or, 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 or Evox or, or, or a Myrna or some of these wild volatile names. And he's using his experience to beat the VWAP, to be there. And now you have to realize that what's so hard about that job is when a stock goes like snow the other day, went down $30 in anticipation of earnings. Earnings came out, it went up $50. The next day it was down $50. It is absolutely ruthless to be a broker on the floor, a human being trying to beat the VWAP. And a stock that goes up and down 30 or $40. Can you imagine if you have 50,000 to buy and the guy says, buy me 10,000 on the opening and you say to him, I'm not sure you want to do that. And he says, go ahead. And then the market reverses like it did yesterday. And within minutes, the stock's down $15. You're spending the rest of the day trying to get back to even. You know what I'm saying? So I say all that to say that that is one of the exciting parts of being a broker, but it's not what I do now. But there are... A lot of the decision-making on what to do in a grander scale is being done upstairs by portfolio managers, analysts, and the guys who generate who, who, where the order comes from. They come down to the floor and a conversation is had between the broker and the clerk on the floor on what to do. And then, look, we don't have the transparency we used to have. There, a lot of the order flow uh, is sort of hidden in the, in the dark pool. A lot of the order flow is just being uh, uh, revealed 100 shares at a time. So while I still will go into the market maker and say, look, I have 50,000 XYZ to buy. Can you tell, give me an idea of where everybody lives? Where are the bodies buried? What's going on so that I can give the best information to my customer? It's a lot harder to do now than it was back in the day because a lot of the order flow is sort of hidden in the nooks and crannies of the, the market maker's book. The business model I trade now is a little bit of a different one. Um, I trade what's called market on close imbalances. I trade dislocations of the market from where, you know, look, we trade markets uh, around the clock now, right? The S&P 500, the spiders trade 24 hours a day, right? And so yet while the New York Stock Exchange, which is where I am a member and where I trade, used to do 80% of the world volume. Now we do about 25 to 30% of the volume. A lot of it's being done on all these other electronic trading platforms around the world. Uh, it's a shame. Uh, yet, we still are the most relevant and the most significant market in the world. And where we price the opening of a stock every morning at 9.30 will affect the way it trades in all the other platforms, okay? What do I do now? One of the things I do, and I can't go into too much depth about it, is I like to see where stocks are trading away pre-market or with the S&P 500 is trading away because you know we can come in in the morning and the S&P 500 is up 24 handles for no other reason than a bunch of I call them gorillas in pajamas hitting buttons you know because guys who don't have any real edge who just have an opinion think that the market should be up right 
and they don't really know where the rest of the public is trading the stocks that go into the S&P 500, right? They're just trading an ETF. They're trading the spider with an opinion, right? And I say that this market transcends opinion in a big way because there can be a big whale who wants this market to go down, a big whale who thinks the market should go up. Somebody's hiding some information about a virus, about a vaccine, about volatility, shit that we don't know is happening around us that's contributing to these crazy moves. Why should a stock be down $30 in anticipation of earnings that people think are gonna be better and the earnings come out and it runs up $50, but when everyone's buying the rumor, selling the news, it goes down $50. That's like, you know, you know that's like rat tattooing, right? That's, you know, walking into a, not to a steak and potato dinner, that's walking into a eight vegetables on top of pasta dinner. It's a little bit messy, right? So all that to say is I trade dislocations in the S&P 500 where they trade away relative to where they're gonna trade in New York. If I see the market trading away at 9.29, up 25 handles, and I only have about two or $300 million of stock notionally to buy in New York City at the NYSC, I don't think that's enough to take the market up 25 handles. So I will play a strange little arbitrage against where the spiders are trading away and where, sorry, uh, where the spiders are trading away and where, they, uh, where they're going to open in New York. And so I tr played, trade that. And then one of the other things I trade is what's called market imbalances, which at two o'clock, the public's interest on to buy or sell comes into the marketplace and we're able to trade around that. It's not inside information, it's information, right? That's not disseminated to uh, the, the public community, but it is to the investment community. And we sort of trade around that. So. The way I, I trade order flow is different than it used to be. It's uh, it's so fast paced. It's probably much faster paced now too with the algos coming in, in and out, right? So, um, you know, I, I love watching the Instagram lives that you do every day. I mean, I'm on them all the time because your, your, your energy is so contagious. Um, I want to ask you one last question. Uh, we're coming up on an hour here and I know time is of the essence, but um, when you look back at the last, you know, 40, 40 years that you've been in the market, um, which crash stood out to you the most and what was your biggest takeaway learning that you're bringing now to this new market? Good question. So, you know, each one of them had different components. Each one of them was at a, 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 a different time in our lives in the lives of the investment community, in our personal lives, right? And, and in the uh, components of the investment trading community. Things have changed and accelerated in a huge way. You know, you talk about, um, um, do you, when you say to someone, are you 90% in crypto and are you pre prepared to lose it all? There's an old phrase called an accredited investor. Right back when your grandfather was alive, I hope he still is alive. If you wanted to be invested in the stock market, and even when my father was alive and I was alive, because I'm not that old, if you wanted to be an investor in the stock market, you had to prove to Merrill Lynch or Goldman Sachs if you opened up a trading account before there were cell phones and apps and all that stuff, if you wanted to open up an account at TD Ameritrade, Charlie Schwab, Goldman Sachs, you have to prove you are accredited investor. What is accredited investor? Everyone should go look it up. That meant to say that the money that you're about to give us to invest, 
that you're, if you lose a hundred percent of it, it will have no effect on your standard of living for the next five years. Okay, that's what, it, and if you could not answer that question with an affirmative, the company would not take your money. Okay, now, do you think that a hundred million of the people who are trading the market today could answer that question? No, Definitely. for damn sure not. Do you think a 90% of these people are over leveraged and over invested and in things that they think are never going to go down because Reddit and Wall Street bets and the memes, as much as I love them all, are telling them that they're going to the moon, right? Are we seeing people come on to Instagram Live in tears because they they bought GameStop at 480 and it's now trading at 260 or 170? And, you know, somebody on the internet told me it was going to a thousand and I believe them, right? So, so I say all that to say that um, I completely forgot your question. Oh yeah, all about the crashes. So let's say the crash of 87 was extraordinary. It was before there were any kind of, we didn't even have computers then, right? So the crash of 87, there were, there were teleprompters on the floor, quotrons on the floor. Everything was done on paper. Ticker it was tape. a paper. It was a ticker tape, crazy sell-off day. And I was a clerk at the time and I worked for Cowan and I worked right under the opening bell. I remember at the end of that day, it really felt like that great scene in Trading Places, even though Trading Places is commodities and not uh, uh, equities. But you know, at the end of the day, the stock went all the way down and went, uh, when, when the paper settled and the dust settled, you know, that, that, that we, you looked around and you looked up at the screen and you said, oh, my God, you know, digital equipment, I don't even think they exist today, was one of the highest flying stocks on the stock market, traded for $164, closed at $64. You know, there were firms that went out of business that night, you know, that there, there were stocks that were, the, I mean, the percentage of where the market was at the time, it was the largest percentage drop, I believe, in history. So, that had a different component to it. It was a lot more real than a lot of this electronic sell-off. The crash of 2000, I don't really remember because I don't remember the year 2000. Um, uh, the crash of 07, it was just so long ago at this point. There have been so many crises since then that are more in my, in my general brain. Uh, 07 is very clear in my mind, yeah, right? Probably, um, probably the most clear out of all of I'll them, look, say. Well, not as clear as the COVID crash, but surely very clear. Um, uh, more for the fact that so many people lost their jobs, so many companies went out and went bankrupt, so many people were caught by surprise. You know, let's think of the nooks and crannies of that story. That was a mortgage crisis. People were selling things to people that shouldn't have been buying them. They shouldn't have been selling them. They were taking insurance against it being a loss. They were repackaging shit in a box and selling it for, for more money so that by the time they started opening the boxes, far, far away from here and thinking they were boxes full of gold. They were actually boxes full of, of paper and, and, and everything crumbled, right? So there was a lot of bad motivation. A lot of people lost their livelihood, their jobs, their houses and everything. And unfortunately, a lot of people made a lot of money on that, on that experience. So that was significant in its own right. I have to admit what's most significant is what we went through on March 23rd, you know, from February 12th, 2020, until March 23rd, 2020, uh, the descent of the market was one of the most significant. It was a purely electronic sell-off that was massive. But what was more important for me as a human being, I mean, I always try to highlight the human element in our market. 
The stock exchange is still a place where there are human beings. It's all electronic. So it puts a different feeling to it. That's why I go down there every day. And I think we're more relevant and important than we ever were before in a market that's so volatile. But the look on people's face, let's be clear of where we're at here. We're now in uh, December 2021, 788,000 people in America. Souls have been lost. Three, four million people around the world have died. There's not a soul on this earth who has not been affected by this. You know, from the hills of Kathmandu, a Sherpa there, to some guy in Antarctica, everyone has been affected. Not a human on earth, four billion plus, have not been affected financially, spiritually, economically by this virus and whatnot. And, um, and so many lives have been changed forever and ever. And I know my life has been that way. So in that way, I think that, that and, and to watch it live itself out in a financial crash, which clearly February 12th, record high 2020, robust banking state, uh, the, the banking community was at their highest, most robust levels. Uh, unemployment was just at their low, the consumer was in the best confidence levels of its lifetime and robust in every possible way. There was plenty of disposable income. The world was on fire. It was great. And then six weeks later, the shit hits the fan. People are dying all over the world and the market sells off 10,000 points. And we're standing there looking at each other going like, you know, is your grandmother going to survive this? I got to move them into my house. Is anyone in a nursing home? I just lost my father. I'm getting sick. People are dying. The world's coming to a complete shut down. No one's getting on a plane. No one's getting on a cruise ship. What the F is going on here, right? And so you looked at each other in each other's eyes and the market's opening down 7%. Circuit Lim Limit downs. There were, I think there was Dude. like seven limit downs that whole month, if I recall. It was insane. I, there, were, there was three limit downs in one morning. Yes. The minute the, we came in the market, and we knew at 929 that the market was going to open and close at the same second, right? And that's kind of a weird feeling. That's like you go to a plane for having a premonition that the plane's going to crash the minute it takes off. You know what I'm saying? But yet you have to take off. We knew we had to open and we knew that the minute we opened, we were going to close. And then we had to wait for seven minutes or 15 minutes. And then it happened again and again and again. So it was a financial distressing situation. And once again, it was also a physical and, and, and spiritual in, in all possible ways. So um, I think that's the most significant one because I think that six weeks was the beginning of a change of the world that, uh, that we will ever know. I don't know what, to, you know, we're still in it. We just lived through the most volatile week. A lot of it had to do with the virus. Right. I don't know what the world's going to look like on at the on the other side of crazy town. Right. I don't think it will ever be the same. You know, we keep talking about we're going to get back to normal. I don't think we're going to get back to normal in, in any way. I, I know I'm not going to. I'm not sure how normal I was in the first place, but I'm not going to ever get back to normal in, in many different ways. Uh, financially, spiritually, emotionally, uh, physically. I know that. And I know a lot of people aren't. And I think the markets, though I have a super positive bullish sentiment about the market, and I have a positive uh, feeling about consumers and their confidence, and I have a po positive feeling on, on the banks and the future of, the, of America, I would never short this country. And I, I think that the financial institution of the NYSE is a wonderful thing. They've been nimble. They've been aggressive about protecting us. They've also been aggressive about protecting people's money. And I've never been more bullish on the fact that I am welcoming and embracing 
to this 40 million plus new retail traders that have come into the market. I'm so thrilled, all of you, that you're here. This, you know, you've finally been invited to this party, and I'm really happy you're here. My fear is that you're all going to get drunk, throw up, and leave and blame me, the suit, because I didn't protect your investment in GameStop and keep it at 483. That's not what I want to happen. I want you all to come to this party now that you've been invited, right? To talk to someone who's been at the party for a while, to learn how you navigate through the party, right? Be profitable, be successful, have a great future in this, whether you become a trader, whether you use this information at your next interview and put it on your resume, whether you go on to become a, get involved in the investment community or whatever. I want everyone to be super successful, enjoy this because it's, it's, it's brand new. It's not your grandfather's stock market. This is the most exciting time in history to be invested in stuff, in stocks, not stuff, right? You know, I think everyone should start, everyone should be in, invested in the market in some way, whether it's through Stash or Acorn or Robinhood or TT Ameritrade or putting $10 a, a month into something, you can fractionally invest in the market. Everybody should be thinking about their future, but do it responsibly. Because I don't know if Bitcoin's going to 20, but it surely did get take a bath last night, right? And as well as a lot of the other cryptos did. And if you were in Peloton and you didn't sell it, I'm sure you're bleeding at the moment. And if you were in on the DocuSign, I'm sure it's quite painful for, um, you know, uh, T. Rowe Price, who owns, uh, you know, 18% of the company, you know, who just probably lost $1.9 billion yesterday. I'm sure that, and I'm not worried about those Guys, I'm worried about the small retail investor who bought some of these names on FOMO and YOLO and Shlolo and Shlomo. And, and, and now they're going to spend the next four months trying to get back to even. Well, Peter, I, I got to be honest with you. Um, I, I remember uh, that week when the COVID crash was happening because we were working. Uh, we, we had CNBC on in the office. You know, we're making calls to brokers all the time. We're trying to get them on you know, various stocks, do stories and stuff like that. And I remember the news came in. I was like, the famous Wall Street trader got COVID. And I saw it and I was like, oh my God, I hope he's okay. And I just hope everything now, you, you, you look like a trillion dollars right now. Yeah. You look great. <laughs> Your energy is so contagious, man. It is absolutely incredible. I, Nick and I would love to have you on for another episode. I mean, this was absolutely Anytime. incredible. Um, the one thing I just want to say is like, we're just so thankful to be, to, to be sharing, you know, this platform with you uh, because your wealth I'm of thrilled. knowledge and experience is, is incredible. Where, where can the listeners find you? So if they want find me, I'm on Instagram, Einstein of Wall Street. I'm on Twitter, Einstein O Wall Street. Uh, we have a, a, a trading school. It's about technical analysis and coaching. Times you can tell I'm not dying yet on Wall Street Global Trading Academy on my Instagram page. There's a link to it. We're doing a live webinar on December 14th. Markets in turmoil using risk management and technical analysis to trade these markets, and we do them all the time. The course is available for $3.99 and it comes with coaching and mentorship. Um, I'm on Instagram all the time. I have a new show coming out in Switzerland called Blink TV. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm out there. I'm easy to reach. People can reach out to me. I'll answer any DM they shoot me and I'm thrilled. That's how you and I met. And I'm thrilled to be on the show again. It's great to meet you both. Thanks so much, Peter. And uh, everybody else, thanks for listening. This is a great episode. Uh, we'll see you next time on the New Gen Mindsets podcast. Ciao, guys. <laughs>